0: Good morning. How's everybody doing? Good. So good to see you. Hope you're doing well, as you said you are, and hope you had a great week and weekend. If we haven't met, my name is Chris. I have the privilege of serving as senior pastor here at BT Church and the honor of taking us into God's word today. If you have your Bible, uh, physical or digital copy, why don't you meet me in the Old Testament book of Nehemiah, and we will be in chapter Four, chapter four of Nehemiah. Let me echo a few things you've already heard and add a few things to it. Uh, let me, as Danny has already done, welcome our VIPs in the room and online. First time guests, so glad to have you. Let's make some noise for the VIPs one more time. Also, BT Online family, let's welcome them. BT McAllen's welcome BT Online. So glad to have you tuned in. You know, here at BT, we believe in a culture of celebration. And I also believe that celebration is a discipline. And so anything that's a discipline, if you don't do it, you don't get used to it, right? You don't, you know, the, you know funny thing, uh, this is going to shock you, but uh, recently uh, my, my exercise routine has not been what it should be. I know it's shocking, but uh, I, I've kind of been falling off the wagon and get back into it. And, you know, the funny thing is when you haven't worked out, lifted weights, ran, whatever it is, when you haven't done something for a little while, that first week back is brutal, right? I mean, everything's sore and you don't want to... And then you get through it. And so, by the way, what I've been doing, I don't recommend. What I do is I go the first week and everything's brutal and then I don't go for three weeks and then I go back and so I'm just always in that cycle where it hurts. But, but, but for, for discipline to set in, you gotta do things. And I believe that celebrating what God is doing is actually a discipline the church should be a part of And I think the reason why a lot of churches today are filled with grumpy people is because they're not celebrating the movement of God. So let's celebrate some things that God has done. This year, uh, 202 people have accepted Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior. Going from death to life, having their eternity rewritten. 111 people have been obedient following that decision by being baptized through believer's baptism. They've entered the baptistries of our campuses and said yes to Jesus. I call that believer's baptism because here at BT Church, we do not believe the scripture teaches that baptism, whether as an infant, a child, or an adult, baptism does not make someone right with God. Water cannot make you right with God. The spirit does when we say yes to Jesus by grace through faith. And 111 people have been obedient in doing so. Uh, This weekend, uh, Danny mentioned this, we led a new members class at our Alice campus, and 21 people have said, I want to lock arms with this church, call it my home church, and become a member. So we welcome those new members today. And we have 30 people in a class that meets here in McAllen on Wednesdays that are currently pursuing membership as well. And, and maybe you're, you've been coming for a while and you, th- and you say, well, wh- should I do that? I, I say yes. I say you should absolutely do membership. And you say, well, why? What are the rights and privileges? Well, funny thing, membership in the church of Jesus isn't about rights and privileges. It's about mission and movement. It's about saying I want to lock arms with this church because I believe they want to move the gospel forward. And so we celebrate all those things. Uh, That God has been doing, and we pray He will continue to do in the life of our church. Uh, In the sovereignty of God, He would have it appointed that we would be preaching Nehemiah chapter 4 today, and that we would be preaching a sermon with the title, Fight the Right Fight. And so, uh, looking at how that is our text and title today, I also celebrate that this week uh, the Supreme Court of the United States overturned, overruled the Roe v. Wade decision of 1973. And you may say, well, why, why are you celebrating that in church? Well, we're, we're going we're gonna to get to God's word, but this is why we celebrate that, because we believe according to scripture that life begins in the womb, that at conception God knits a child together. And, and we want to be a church, right, that values life. That, that's why we celebrate that, that decision. That's why we, we, we want to celebrate anything that promotes life. So, so we believe that life is valuable in the womb. We believe that life is valuable regardless of race. We believe that life is valuable regardless of gender, regardless of age. So like ageism, sexism, racism, the church stands against that. And the church stands for life and the protection of the unborn as well. And so we celebrate that. But we also, so, so again, cultural celebration, we celebrate it, but we also celebrate knowing that the work is not done. And my heart is that we'll be a church that will continue, right, to value life, that will come alongside families and we will uh, support uh, the, the, th- the, the flourishing of life from children to senior adults. And that God would allow us to be a beacon of hope in South Texas and across the world for life uh, to be regarded as sacred. And so we Uh, celebrate what's happened in our church, we celebrate what happened uh, this week with that decision, and we also say that we are going to lock arms to continue to push the ball forward, right, Uh, to see progress in the valuing of life. I I say it this way, Uh, in in a football game, if the team that receives the opening kickoff uh, goes down and scores a touchdown on their first possession, but they don't score again, the odds of them winning that game, right, are not very high. And so we, we, we celebrate, right? We do an end zone dance when we score, but we know the game is still going on and Satan still has schemes that he wants to use uh, to divide and to push back. And so we celebrate what we've accomplished, but we know that there is still work to be done. So today, as we jump into Nehemiah chapter 4, if you've missed the past few weeks, you can catch up online you can find those sermons uh, on our website or our app you can go to YouTube search BT church but but if you've missed just a, a, a real quick recap so Nehemiah is a prophetic book in the Old Testament uh, the nation of Israel so the nation of Israel right uh, it, it had actually split and there was a northern and southern kingdom Israel and Judah. Those kingdoms were conquered because the people turned their back on God. So, so Israel, one kingdom, becomes two. Those two kingdoms actually are conquered as Babylon comes in, the Babylonian Empire, and takes over. And then the Persian Empire would come and take over as well. And so the city of God, called Jerusalem, it was destroyed. So this guy Nehemiah, he, he is a Jew, he's a man of God, but he is working in the court of the king of Persia, and he hears that his home, Jerusalem, is still in ruins, and it cuts him to the heart, and so he feels a call from God, a vision from the Lord to go and rebuild the walls and rebuild the city, and his king that he works at the court of sees that, that he's kind of sad and down, and the king says, you know, why are you so long-faced, right? Why, why are you sad? And really putting his life on the line because to ask to leave could have resulted in execution, Nehemiah says, I desire to go to my home, to Jerusalem, to rebuild the walls. And we, we saw last week in chapter two that Nehemiah asked for permission and the king granted it. Nehemiah asked for provision, right? He needed some papers so that if he got stopped, he was he could show he was doing the king's business. He he needed to be able to get supplies for the building the king granted that and then he didn't even think about protection but the king granted protection sending guards with him because beloved don't forget this when you are busy doing the lord's work he'll give you the things you know you need and he'll give you the things you don't know you need because he's going to see his work to completion so so that's what happened last week nehemiah went and he got to the city And he saw that it was in ruins, and we remind ourselves that, beloved, if we want to move forward, we've got to be honest and evaluate when things are in ruins, right? We can't rebuild until we acknowledge the rebuilding has to be done. The greatest need of humanity to receive Jesus as Savior can't happen until we acknowledge we need a Savior. And so we talked about how we face the ruins in our lives. Chapter 3. Construction begins. Gates are being built. Teams are assigned. And now, in chapter 4, as the construction continues, opposition comes. Opposition comes against. Nehemiah and the people, and we want to talk about how do we continue to fight the right fight, to fight the fight God has called us to, to be faithful to the end. How do we do that even in the midst of opposition? How do we do it when we're discouraged? Because let's be honest, sometimes all of us face discouragement, right? Why do we face discouragement? Sometimes we face discouragement because we've failed, right? Sometimes we, we, we have a failure in our past and the enemy just keeps bringing that up and we feel like we can't move forward. So, sometimes we feel discouragement because of friction, right? By the way, these are all things that the people of Israel, Judah, were experiencing, right? They, they The reason why the walls had to get rebuilt is because they failed to keep their eyes on God to begin with. There's now friction with sand and Tobias and uh, Tobiah and the Ammonites and all these people that we're gonna see in the text. The friction when we feel friction, right? For those of you that are married, when there's friction at home, it's discouraging. Frustration, right? When we can't seem to get things going in the right direction, that can discourage us. Fear. Not knowing how it's gonna turn out can discourage us. And the wrong focus, right? When our focus is solely on the problem and not the solution that is Jesus, many times we will feel discouraged and like we simply can't move forward. So as we read the text, I want to talk about where do we fight, like what are the arenas and how, and then ultimately why. So where, how, and why. Let's take a look at the text, Nehemiah chapter 4, starting in verse 1, when Sanballat, heard that they they were rebuilding the wall, he became furious and he mocked the Jews before his colleagues and the powerful men of Samaria and said, what are these pathetic Jews doing? Can they restore it by themselves? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they ever finish it? Can they bring these burnt stones back to life from the mounds of rubble? Then Tobiah the Ammonite who was beside him said, indeed, even if a fox climbed up, What they are building, he would break down their stone wall. Now, Nehemiah responds in prayer, Listen, our God, for we are despised. Make their insults return on their own heads and let them be taken as plunder to a land of captivity. Do not cover their guilt or let their sin be erased from your sight because they have angered the builders. So we rebuilt the wall until the entire wall was joined together up to half its height. For the people had the will to keep working. So the people are mocked but they continue to be about the task, and notice Nehemiah's response while he is mocked is not to return the insult, but to take it to the Lord, right? Verse 7, when Sanballat, Tobiah, and the Arabs, Ammonites, and Ashdodites heard the repair to the walls of Jerusalem was progressing, that the gaps were being closed, they became furious, they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and throw it into confusion. Let me point this out. What we read in verse 7 that says that Sanballat, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the Ashtadites all worked together to come against them. If you studied this geographically, what we know about the significance of this is that Sandballat would come against the people from the north, Tobiah and the Ammonites would come against them from the east. The Arabs would come against them from the south, and the, and the Ashtadites would come against them from the west. Do you ever find yourself in a situation, and you feel like the walls are closing in, and no matter where you turn around, everyone is against you? That's, that's where the, the nation of Israel is. That's where the people are. This group has plotted together to come against them, but they mocked them. That didn't slow them down, so now they're raising the ante, and they're going to try to physically attack them. Verse 9, so we prayed to our God and station to guard because of them day and night. Verse 10, in Judah it was said the strength of the laborer fails since there is so much rubble we will never be able to rebuild the wall. So now they're starting to lose heart. And our enemies, they won't realize it until we're among them and can kill them and stop the work. When the Jews who lived nearby arrived, they said to us time and again, everywhere you turn, they attack us. They're feeling the mounting pressure. So I stationed people behind the lowest sections of the wall at the vulnerable areas. I stationed them by families with their swords, spears, and bows. After I made an inspection, I stood up and said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, don't be afraid of them. Remember the great and awe-inspiring Lord And fight for your countrymen, your sons and daughters, your wives and homes. Verse 15, when our enemies heard that we knew their scheme and that God had frustrated, it, every one of us returned to his own work on the wall. From that day on, half of my men did work while the other half held spears, shields, bows, and armor. The officers supported all the people of Judah who were rebuilding the wall. The laborers who carried the loads worked with one hand and held a weapon With the other. That's not fighting with one hand behind your back, that's keeping one hand to the task and having one hand ready for what the enemy would do. Each of the builders had his sword strapped around his waist while he was building, and the one who sounded the ram's horn was beside me. And then I said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, The work is enormous and spread out, and we are separated far from one another along the wall. Whenever you hear the sound, wherever you hear the sound of the ram's horn, rally to us there. Our God will fight for us. And so we continued the work while half of the men were holding spears from daybreak until the stars came out. At that time, I also said to the people that everyone and his servants spend the night inside Jerusalem so that they can stand guard by day and work by night. And I, my brothers, my servants, and the men of the guard with me never took off our clothes. Each carried his weapon, even when washing what a story right Nehemiah gets that vision he's going to go in faithfulness to the Lord rebuild the walls of Jerusalem he gets permission from the king as he sets out this guy Sanballat and Tobiah they hear about it they they aren't they're not in favor of this it could affect them in a negative way it could affect their resources they start building gates are being rebuilt Progress is happening. The opponents begin to mock them. That doesn't slow them down. And then they physically threaten them. The people get a little nervous. Fear sets in, right? They're attacking us from all around. Nehemiah recalibrates their hearts and says, no, don't forget this. The Lord will fight for us. So they continue in faithfulness, one hand with a trowel, one hand with a sword. They are continuing to be faithful And to continue to build the wall as God had instructed. And so looking at this text and seeing how the people of Judah would be faithful in the midst of opposition. The question is, where are the the arenas or the areas or the circumstances that we need to be ready to fight the right fight and so four things I'd encourage you to write down as far as where it is that we are called to engage. Here's the first one. What where, where what arena do we need to fight in? The arena of identity. The arena of our identity in in the insults that Sandball and the others offered. The first thing they did was attack their identity. What are these pathetic Jews doing? Can they restore it by themselves? Will they offer sacrifice? Will they ever finish it? Can they bring these burnt stones back to useful purpose? Their identity is being challenged. Beloved, once you give your life to Christ and you are sealed by the Holy Spirit, Satan has lost you forever. You are secure in your faith, but he wants to wreck your identity. He wants you to get things twisted and mixed up and out of order in your life. And when it comes to engaging in the spiritual battles that we are engaged in, we have to fight in the arena of our identity. Who do we belong to? Who does God say you are? That's the foundation from which you build everything else. Here they were attacked, and what, what, what does Nehemiah do? He begins to pray, and he encourages them to remember who they belong to. So identity, second arena that we fight in is purpose. Again, the insults would attack that. Can they restore it by themselves? Can they actually accomplish the task God has called them to do? When you get to verse 10, after receiving the threats From their opponents in Judah, it was said the strength of the laborer fails since there is so much rubble. What was happening in verse 10? They were losing sight of the purpose they were called to. And ultimately, remember this, beloved, it wasn't simply about rebuilding walls. It was about standing on the promises of God. It wasn't just a physical construction project, it was a spiritual construction of their faith and trusting that God would keep the promises he had spoken to, the, to their forefathers before. So their purpose is being attacked. Third, the insult would be, will they offer sacrifices? The third arena where we need to fight is our worship they're being challenged. You actually think you're ever going to get this place done where you could come and offer sacrifice? We have to engage in the spiritual battle of our worship. Where is our heart's affection being directed? Beloved, understand this. The enemy will continually ask you if you're going to continue to worship even when times get hard. The enemy will continue to tempt you to turn your back on God when you feel like God's turned your back on you, which he never does. He never leaves us or forsakes us. So we fight in our identity in Christ. We fight in the purpose we've been given. And what is that purpose? To bring glory to God by making disciples and making much of Jesus. We fight in worship, keeping our hearts attuned and affixed to him. And in the fourth area that we fight, we fight in the area of restoration The last part of the insult in verse 2, will they ever finish it? Can they bring these burnt stones back to life from the mounds of rubble? You know why we fight in the area of restoration? You know why this is so critical to us as a church specifically? Because restoration is the single greatest universal need that humanity faces. Colossians chapter 1 teaches us, as the Apostle Paul wrote, that Jesus was reconciling all things to himself. He was restoring all things unto himself. Here is a common denominator for humanity. Our single greatest need is to be restored to God. Once we have been restored to God, we work in the area of restoration for others. Uh, We live in a unique time, and and we at BT hold to what the Bible says to be true, so that's why we celebrate what happened this week with the overturning of Roe v. Wade, because the Bible tells us life begins in the womb, right? And so that's that's. What we rest on, and I understand that there are conflicts and different opinions and all these things, but here's the deal, listen to me, beloved, we celebrate what has happened. We know that there's more work to be done, but at the end of the day, here's the reality. If you have Jesus in your heart, the primary battle, no matter what the secondary battle is, is... Is always restoration. You know why we want the unborn to be valued? Because we want them to come to this life. We want to promote Jesus, right? We want restoration. And so as we engage in things in society and in our homes, because sometimes in our homes is where restoration is needed, between husbands and wives and prodigal children, and in our church, we engage in the fight of restoration because it is the single greatest need there is. And you know what what the enemy would love to do to the church? One, he'd love for us to disengage in the areas that we need to move forward, but he would also love for us to forget that the primary battle is restoration. And so, listen, if you celebrate like I do the decision that was made this week, understand there will be people who will oppose you. And if those people who oppose you don't know Jesus, understand their greatest need isn't for you to prove them wrong, but to point them to Jesus. Jesus is the greatest need that we have, and we've got to fight in the arena of restoration. And sometimes we get wronged, and we get hurt, and sometimes the spouse has has done things, and sometimes our children or our parents or our our siblings or our co-workers, and we are wronged, and, and it's legitimate, like there's no excuse, but we need to work towards restoration, but we want to hold on to that bitterness when we've been hurt, right? We want to hold on, and and, and we and here's the thing, when you hold on to the bitterness, you lose sight of what God is wanting to do in you and through you, and many times when we're holding on to the bitterness and withholding forgiveness, there is one simple practice That can help recalibrate our hearts. If you would. As I read this week this quote. If you would remember. If I would remember. The ocean of grace. It took to save me. I would then easily dispense. The thimble of grace. It takes to forgive you. If I would remember the ocean of grace. That it took for God to save me. Because I needed all of it. Then that. As the foundation. Allows me to. Dispense the thimble of grace that I need to forgive my brother or sister in Christ. We, we fight in the area of restoration because while we fight against the things and the evils of this life and of this world and the systems of our enemy, while we fight against those things, if we do not fight with restoration to God as the goal, we simply make this earth a better place to go to hell from. The gospel has to be the foundation with which we fight. That's why Nehemiah, in the text, when the people are discouraged, what does he say? He says to them that the, in verse 14, remember the great and awe-inspiring Lord and then fight for your countrymen. He says in verse 20 that when you hear the sound of the ram's horn, rally to us there, our God will fight for us. So we fight in the area of our identity Resting in who God says we are, we fight in the purpose we've been called to, to bring glory to God by making much of Jesus. We, we fight in our worship, making sure our hearts are pointed to him and to him alone and not for our own gain and glory. And we fight in restoration, knowing that once we receive Jesus, we have been restored. And now we point others to the hope that they can be restored as well. All right, so then how? That's where, so then how do we fight? How do we engage in these areas? Well, good news, if you wrote those four words down, just write them down again. Because how we fight, it's the same thing as where we, how do we fight? We fight with our identity in Jesus. Right? Notice that in the beginning of chapter Four, when insulted, the first thing that Nehemiah does is not return the insult. He goes straight to God, right? He knows who he belongs to, He knows who will fight for him. He knows where the answer is. He's not going to give his attention to the problem. He's going to give his attention to the solution, and he does so because he knows who he is. He knows who he is, and he knows whose he is, so we fight. With our identity, we know who we belong to. We fight with our purpose, right? We fight with our purpose. When we feel the enemy and the world around us wanting to discourage us and keep our eyes off of that which God has called us to do, we fight with purpose. How does that happen in the text? Well, what happens? The the people are insulted and Nehemiah prays. Then they're threatened and the attacks come. And Nehemiah develops a wise plan, right? He says, hey, it's what we're going to do. We're going to put people at the lowest and most vulnerable parts of the wall. We're going to have a sword in one hand and a trowel in the other. We're going to have a sword at our belt. We're going to stand watch. He, He develops a plan for which to continue to operate in his purpose. Hear me, beloved, the enemy wants to attack you and the purpose God has for you. You say, well, Chris, I don't even know what my purpose is. Well, if you've given your life to Jesus, your purpose is to walk in the fullness of life that he has promised you as you seek him first. If you haven't given your life to Jesus, your purpose is to give your life to Christ. So, so how do we, you know, sometimes, listen, sometimes preachers, we, we may kind of wax eloquently and give you a great line to put on Twitter or whatever social media outlet you want. But we don't always break it down. So let me break this down. What does it mean to say that we, want, that, that, that we want to fight in our purpose. Well, you keep your focus on the right thing, and then you just continue to work on the obvious, right? You just continue to work. So let, let me just kind of talk about some arenas of life where this can happen to us. Our finances, right? Sensitive subject. Don't worry, I will offend everyone by the time we're done. So I'm, I don't want to offend you. I'm willing to, but I don't want to. So, our finances, right? And so God has guess what? God has a purpose for our finances. To bless us, right? Listen, God wants to bless us. He wants to bless us. He wants to meet our needs according to his riches and glory and he wants he has a purpose for our finances to increase Our trust in him. That's why he asks us for the tithe. As I say all the time, God doesn't need our money. He's not lacking in net worth, right? He's off the charts. He is the chart. He is the market, right? He doesn't need it. Why does he ask for it? Because we need him so he's got a plan and a purpose in our finances. So sometimes we find ourselves where our finances are all out of whack. And sometimes maybe husband and wife, both spouses are gainfully employed, you're working hard, you, you got pretty decent jobs, but you still you still feel like your finances are out of order. So then you take a step back and you realize your debt ratio is through the roof, right? Now, I promise I'm not going to turn this into, you know, a financial planning session. I'm just talking about how we keep our focus and our purpose and move forward. So you're way overextended, but yet continue, what do we do? We continue to overextend ourselves, and we continue to spend money in places that doesn't have to be spent. And so when you need to fight with your purpose, your purpose being life to the fullest, God doesn't want you to be buried under debt and feel that weight. But so we pray, well, God, just take it away. Well, guess what he's probably going to do? Grow you in the process. So you stop using the credit card, and you stop eating out, and you eat at home, and, and you make changes, right? This is why I'm fighting with your purpose is not, is not this great mystery. You find the next obvious step. You know what Nehemiah did? They got attacked from all sides. He said, you know what? We're going to put people in the most vulnerable parts of the wall, and we're going to keep on working. We're going to keep... He he just he developed a plan, and it was wise. Your marriage, it's struggling, maybe. You feel tension with your spouse. So then you know what you do? Husband, you think about what you're doing to bring tension to the equation, and then you stop doing it, right? Wives, you think about what you're doing to bring tension to the equation, and you stop doing it. By the way, that's why I never have repeat appointments for marriage counseling, right? Every once in a while, somebody will say, hey, hey, Chris, we, we want to do some marriage counseling. Will you, I was like, I don't really do that. You know, Pastor Ron or Mike, or, no, we want to meet with you. All right, I'll meet with you. And they come in, and you know, I'm like, all right, so tell me what's going on. Husband, well, you know, she's doing this, and it's driving me crazy. I'm like, okay, okay. Well, do, would, do you agree that you're doing what he says? Well, yeah, I am, but I do that because he's doing this, and that drives me crazy. And I say, hey, stop doing that. You, stop. Don't worry about what she's doing. Stop doing that. And you stop doing that. And then they look at me. I'm like, I'm done. That's what I got for you. <laughs> like, stop. And then they go see Ron, and, you know, and everything gets fixed. But, <laughs> but here's the deal. Listen to me. Stay with me. In your marriage, You evaluate not what the other is doing that needs to be changed. You evaluate what you're doing, right? Now, you say, well, Chris, my spouse is having an affair. Obviously, there are lines, right? When your spouse is being unfaithful, you need to worry about what they're doing, right? But when most of the things that cause friction in the home, you think about what you're doing, and you change it. You make the obvious next step. So we fight with, not we fight in our purpose, but we fight with our purpose. We fight with our worship. That's how we fight. We fight understanding. Listen, again, I go back because it's such a monumental reality of the Supreme Court's decision this this week. And we celebrate that, but we recognize that the battle is, and, and everyone doesn't know this, right? Everyone doesn't know this. That's why we've got to know it. The battle is actually not against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities and the prince of the air, Satan himself. And so we know that, and we will welcome natural tools to push him back like that decision in the high court, but we know ultimately it's a supernatural weapon that will push him back, and that is faith-filled believers choosing Jesus above everything else so that our priority in worship is directed towards him. We know that, that our hearts align to him And him alone. And it sounds basic and elementary, but so many times our hearts just get a little shift, right? For the person who's given their life to Jesus, Satan is no dummy. He's not going to come in and try to get you to reject God altogether, but he knows if he can get you just a little bit off course, over time, that one degree of variance is going to create a great separation. And we may find ourselves sitting in church many Sundays and feeling like we are so high and mighty, but the truth is our worship is directed to ourselves. So we, we fight by keeping our worship pointed to him, and then we fight with restoration. We fight with restoration as the goal. I, you know, I shared last week, one of my one of my dreams is that we as a church, as we engage in the valuing of life, is that we would be able to have a ministry that would come alongside, uh, you know, stereotypically maybe single young moms that, that that need sonograms for free. And we would have a place where foster parents could come and say, hey, we need some diapers and formula. And, and the body of Christ would band together and meet those needs. And we would have a place where we help people move forward in the adoptive process, right? Let me just say this. This week was great. You you know what the next thing we need to do we need we need to make adoption not the most expensive thing in the world right and so let's band together as the church and let's be acts chapter two and pull our resources so more children can have a, a, a chance to be in a home where they'll be raised and have the basic needs met right and so we fight for and we fight with restoration as a tool you know what satan wants He wants the church to take a week like we just had where there was great progress and to turn it into a thought process that everyone who opposes us is now the enemy and we must cut them off. We must bring them to Jesus. We we need those hearts that are hardened just like ours were, right? We need those hearts that were hardened to be exchanged. It's, it's, It's not an actual repair. It's a heart transplant. You know what Satan dreads when the people who oppose life and the things of God find life in Christ, right? He hates that because he loses that battle for that heart forever so we wage war and we fight the right fight and we do it with restoration as the overarching weapon that we use pointing people to the single greatest need there is on the planet and that is Jesus because no matter what we accomplish if we do it without Jesus there is no hope the only hope for a hopeless world is Jesus himself Okay, where, right? Identity, purpose, worship, restoration. How? Identity, purpose, worship, restoration. Why? Identity, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. This one's easy. This one's easy. Why? Like, why, Chris? Why? It's the that, whole fight talk, man. It wears me out. I'm tired. Do you know why we do this? Why identity is so critical in our purpose and our worship and the reality of restoration. Why? Plain and simple. For the glory of God. For the glory of God. We want to push things forward for the glory of God. Nehemiah in the text tells them God will fight for us. He tells them in verse 14, remember the great and awe-inspiring Lord Remember that it's not simply a wall we're rebuilding. It's the promises of God that we're standing on. You know, at at BT, as God gives us the ability to move forward and maybe open a new campus, and sometimes there's projects that get involved with that. You know, in in 2000 and, well, in 1987, this, this location was constructed, and we're thankful for that. In 2008, our kids' building at this McAllen campus was constructed, and we're thankful for that. In 2014, this room was remodeled, and we're thankful for that. So we recognize sometimes, right, there is the building of the wall. But why are we building, right? We've talked about this for a long time. Our, here at the McAllen campus, let me just talk about the McAllen campus for a minute. Uh, the facility and the space that the teenagers, our student ministry meet, is called our pavilion. It's this metal building right here to the east, right? And, and if you're new, you're like, that's not a pavilion, it's a building. It used to be a pavilion, and then we put walls on it, and we still called it a pavilion. I don't know, we're weird. So anyways. So, this, so since 2005, teenagers have been meeting in that building. For four years, I was a youth pastor that was having teenagers meet in that building. And let me be clear, I'm thankful for all the lives that have been transformed in the ministry that's happened in that building. But here in McAllen, if you're watching online, just humor me for a minute. But here in McAllen, if a family comes to church for the first time, listen, there may be nicer spaces, but this is a pretty nice space that we meet in for worship, right? And that atrium's not bad, and we got a little bookstore there. You can get some coffee. We got some classrooms. You go down to the kids' building, super nice kids' building. But if you got a teenager, they go to the dungeon, and we're just, you know, we we just said a few years ago, we don't want it to be that way. Now, God has called us to step out, and we've opened some campuses and redirected some, you know, we had to, we had to focus some funds uh, to make those campuses a reality. But, but I bring all this to a point. First off, to celebrate, l- by God's grace, the pavilion project is officially under construction. If you walk in that building, <laughs> the interior walls are gone. And I just got to say it, so is the red carpet, if you know what I'm talking about. So... Uh, I can deliver that to your home if you'd like it. But anyways, and so we're going to take the next nine or so months, and that, bu- that building's getting a full renovation, and it's going to be a space where we're going to incorporate the outdoor area. There'll be some basketball courts and volley- sand volleyball courts and places for students during the week to want to be on our campus to hang out. And so, yes, we're investing in some brick and mortar, but you know why we're doing it? For the glory of God, so, so that more people Men, women, teenagers, and children will be pointed to him. Why do we engage in all the things that we engage in as believers? For the glory of God. And we got to say that over and over again because if we're not careful, we will do things for our own glory. So, so what do we do? Right? You're like, man, Nehemiah. Like last week I kind of got it. This week it's tough, man. What do I do with this? Okay. Let me give you a few things. What what can we do as we read Nehemiah chapter 4 and see everything that's happened, what can we do? Here's the first next step you might could take. You you might evaluate your focus. Remember I said earlier that, that when our focus is off, discouragement sets in. And listen, I don't make light of this. Sometimes we get that medical diagnosis. Sometimes we bury that loved one. Sometimes that divorce paper gets served. Sometimes we get the news that the spouse is having the affair. Sometimes the child moves out and lives a prodigal life. Sometimes we find out we're going to be laid off. Sometimes these things happen and they are real. But what the enemy wants is for our focus to be on the problem, so we disengage from the fight. And so I'm asking you, maybe you need to leave here today, and you need to evaluate where is your focus? Is it on the problems? Is it on what you wish you had? Or is it on the solution that is Jesus? Now again, I I shared earlier, sometimes preachers, we don't break it down, so let me break it down. How do we shift our focus from the problem to the solution? how do we how do we do that you know how you focus on God like to not just leave that kind of out there you you focus on God in two ways you seek him and you trust him you seek him and you trust him all right what do you mean seek him well you're doing a great job you're Gathered for corporate worship. You seek him in community. You seek him in prayer. You you might need to say, hey, every morning, 6 30 a.m., 7 30 a.m. I'm gonna spend five minutes in prayer. And I'm not just gonna tell God what I want from him. I'm gonna tell him what I'm thankful for and how much I how, how how great he is. But you schedule some time to be in prayer. You say, Hey, I'm gonna seek him in the word. So you schedule five minutes to go through the Gospel of Mark or read the book of Proverbs or jump into Philippians and you say, Well, Chris. That doesn't sound very spiritual. Don't believe the lie. A, scared, a scheduled spiritual life is as spiritual as an unscheduled one, and the chances are it's more likely to happen. Like, oh, I just want the spirit to move and tell me when I'm gonna get in the word. I'll tell you when you're in the word. You're not. If your life, listen to me. If your life looks anything like mine, if I don't say this is the time, and by the way, there's a biblical principle. And I'm not trying to. You know, I'm getting a little bit on my soapbox. I apologize. But, but there's, a biz, there's a biblical principle for, for ahead of time saying, God, this is the time I'm giving you. It's called first fruits, right? That's why we believe that the tithe is the first tenth. Well, you can give God the first tenth of your time as well. And so you seek God by, by, by spending time in his word and spending time in prayer and spending time with the saints and the body of Christ. That's how, that's how you seek him. And then you trust God, right? But again... How do we don't, don't just leave that out there. How do we trust God? Well, even though I, I, I gave my life to Christ in college, so I, I went through all of my high school, middle school, elementary years not a believer. That being said, I did grow up in church, right? I'm thankful that even though I didn't give my life to Christ until college, I did grow up around the things of faith. And growing up in Alice, my family, we always attended a small church there in town, and my parents were super involved. And my entire life, my mom played the piano at our church, and she was the the choir director. She didn't sing. God bless my mom. She was amazing, but she couldn't carry a tune for nothing. She could play them. She couldn't sing them. Uh, but she had enough musical gifting that she could direct the choir, right? And so I would go to church, and man, we would sing these songs, but that wasn't the end of it for me, because all week long, I heard her banging out those songs on the piano that was like right outside my room that didn't have a door, and so I'm just like, ah, oh, you know, Lord, why couldn't you invent the AirPods in the 80s? But anyways, and so I, these songs, they just got ingrained in my heart, right? And there's a song that we used to sing that some of you may know. So how do I trust God? Well, there's a song that gives us the answer. Trust and obey, right? For there's no other way to what? To be happy. We're like, obedience is so boo. No, obedience unlocks joy. People are like, oh, God's a big downer. You don't know God. He came to give life to the fullest. And so we trust. How do we trust? We obey. And so let me ask you, you want a next step? Where is your next step of obedience? You know, we we don't have a problem at BT talking about the tithe, one, because we practice it. We'll give give away $450,000 to missions this year because we believe in giving back to the Lord even as the church receives from the membership, right? So we practice it, but it's in the Bible also. And the reason why I don't mind talking about the topic of generosity, again, it's not because, and again, every time I say this, I think some people that have been in church a long time get a little bit uncomfortable. If God doesn't need your money, guess what? The church doesn't either. Because Jesus said the gates of hell can't prevail against his church. So as long as we're building his church, you're like, so you're you're telling me not to give? No, I'm telling you you should give. It's not about God needing it. As I've already said today, you need Him. And so you obey Him by trusting Him with your treasure and resources. You trust Him with your relationships, right? Some of you, listen to me, you need to hear this. You have given your life to Christ and you are sealed in the Spirit. But you have not yet been baptized. Listen, we do not believe at BT that baptism can ever provide salvation. It is not the answer for a sinful heart. Jesus is. But baptism is the response to the grace of God applied to our lives. It is a step of obedience. And obedience is a step of trust. And so I am telling you, I am begging you, however you want it to sound. If you have said yes to Jesus and you have not said yes to baptism, you are not missing your salvation. It is sealed, but you are missing the joy of it because obedience unlocks joy. And baptism is literally a public declaration. Why would you not want to go public with your faith? And so in a few moments as we close out, if you want to talk about baptism, and maybe you have some genuine questions, we'd love to answer those. But, but what, what do you do with this subject? How, how do you understand how, how it is that you engage in the fight that is spiritual? You, you get your focus set. How do you get your focus set? You seek the Lord and you trust the Lord. How do you seek the Lord? The word, prayer, the church. How do you trust him? Obedience. All right. How, what else do you do? What, what else can you do? You unite with the body of Christ. Unite with God's people. You, you want to position yourself to be ready for the spiritual battles that will come your way? Unite yourself to the people of God. Listen, you're here preaching to the choir, right? But today, what the enemy is doing is he is stripping away the, prior, the priority of the community of faith, he's, he's stripping it away. And, and if, if, you, if you want to be ready for the spiritual battles that will come your way, I'm telling you, a great step to take is to unite with the body of Christ. Put this, corporate worship, as a priority in your schedule. Take the next step and find a point of community. We've got some Sunday morning classes here at the McAllen campus. We have community groups. We need more community groups. Launch a new CG. Come on Wednesday night to our men's or our women's studies as they meet, but find a place to connect Parents, get your children connected to our kids' ministry, right? This week, Wednesday, our kiddos will head out to kids' camp. Listen, let me, be, let me make uh, one very clear point. Pastor Joaquin, our kids' pastor and his team, they are not called to be the primary spiritual advisor of your child's life. But they are a great assistant coach, And what coach doesn't want good assistance, right? If you have a teenager, get them here on Wednesday nights for student ministry. Have them connect with what's going on. Colin and the youth team are not called to be your child's primary spiritual advisors. But guess what? Parenting is tough, right? Listen to me. I knew some of y'all. Uh, when, when I had just one kid, when when Chris and I moved here in 2007, we had one child. Now listen, we have four, and I love all of them, and I, I would do it all again. But some of you could have told me how hard this parenting thing is. <laughs> listen, I, I was a youth pastor for 10 years, right? And sometimes parents would want to talk to me. They're like, Chris, I just, it's just so hard. And and I was like, Well, I don't understand why it's hard. I mean, Funny thing about the youth pastor is you teach and then you send them home. The parent is you, you have them come home, right? And, and so listen. Parents, you are the primary spiritual advisor for your teenager. You're not supposed to punt that responsibility, but we've got a great team of assistant coaches that would love to come alongside you and help, but you've got to unite your teenager to the people of God. Okay, just in case there's maybe a few people that are not yet have your toes stepped on, let me talk about an issue in that area. And I'm just going to ask an honest question. Listen, you will never hear me say that as a parent you shouldn't engage your child in extracurricular activities. I all of our kids, we have four of them and so when you got four and they all do something, we we're just Uber drivers. That's what my wife, we just we just drive people around, right? I think sports can help create character and discipline. I think the arts can foster talents that could be used for a An entire life. And so, listen, I'm for your child being engaged in athletics and being engaged in music and theater and all, debate team, all those things, right? But we live in a world and a society where those things are so prioritized that what is devalued many times is the time with the body of Christ. I am, hear me, I'm genuinely, I don't, this is not a guilt trip, I'm asking you a question. You are the spiritual advisor for your child. The question I have for you is if their activities make it impossible for them to engage with the student ministry or children's ministry of your home church. Here's the question. And the answer may be yes. I don't know. But is their coach, their music teacher, their uh, theater director, whatever, is their leader in their activity a better spiritual assistant coach? the youth pastor and the team at the church if the answer is yes okay but i think you should at least evaluate the question we unite with god's people In national geographic right so like i mean cable tv I, I don't even know when that ceased to be a thing but but it did and so i you know all i know is i can still watch sports on my tv somehow through you know streaming and i'm, I'm good with that but i remember watching national geographic right I, I'll, I'll move on with this. And, you know, you got like Shark Week and all that cool stuff. But, but you remember the, the TV shows where it would always be like it would be shot in the Serengeti of Africa, and they would show like the herd of wildebeest running from the lioness, right? And the herd is running, and the lioness is like, I ain't nothing I can do. And there's always the one dodo, right, who's like, hey, we're all going the same direction. I'm going to trick the lion by breaking right. Boop, lunch, right? The dude that goes off on his own ends up in the mouth of the lion. I just close with that when it comes to this point. Listen, we are called to run the race together as believers. The reason why we unite in the faith, the reason why the church is so critical. Listen, people say, Chris, you always harp on that. you telling me I can't be a Christian if I don't go to church? Of course you can. You're just going to be the wildebeest outside the pack. Listen, Satan would love to get inside of our worship service and tear it down. He, he would love to get in your classroom. He'd love to get in your community group. He'd love to do that, but that's going to take some energy, and he's no dummy. So if he sees one of us running off on our own, he's probably picking that one off. You want to engage? You want to fight the spiritual battles that are being waged for the joy of the life that Jesus died to provide? Unite with the body of Christ and then ultimately seek restoration. Don't let there be division between you and other believers. Seek restoration, but most importantly, if you have not done so, be restored to God. If you don't know where you stand with God because you don't know if you've put your faith in Jesus, let me just be clear, it takes an ocean of grace to save your soul but Jesus has that ocean. It is not religious activity. It's it's not family background. It's not your baptism. We believe the scriptures to be abundantly clear that every person is a sinner. And because of that, we have missed the mark that God requires. We believe the Bible is also clear that the payment, the wages of sin is death. You're like, this is not feeling good. Hold on, stay with me. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. It is true to this day death always pays for sin. If you live your entire life and do not place your faith in Jesus, then the sad reality is your death will pay for your sin, both the physical death and your eternal death as you are separated from God for all of eternity. But if you would believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and God raised him from the dead, then death still pays for sin, but it's Jesus' death. And you place your faith in in it, Jesus, and you believe not just that he died for your sin, but he rose again in victory. And in that moment of belief, you are restored to a holy God. And the beauty is you don't got to wait to take your last breath to go to heaven to experience what that's like. You live with Jesus every day. And so today, if you're in this room or you're watching online... Listen, there's going to be some steps you might need to take. If you're in the room, you may want to come forward and pray with our prayer ministers. I encourage you to do so. If you're online, text us how we can pray for you. Drop it in the comment section. If you want to talk about baptism, come forward. Let's talk about baptism. But if there is someone in this room or online and you don't know if you've done business with God, if you don't know if your eternity is secured because you've been restored to God, then I'm going to invite you to make that decision. I'm going to ask everyone to bow their head and close their eyes. And today, if you don't know where you stand with Jesus, but you want to get that figured out, I'm going to invite you to pray with me. I'm going to ask you to say this prayer to yourself right where you are. As I say every week, the, the prayer is not a magic formula. Please understand. It's not a magic formula. Mindlessly reciting words in a church or watching a service online doesn't accomplish anything. But believing that you need a Savior And knowing Jesus is that Savior, well, that's a confession of salvation. And so if that's you, you want to give your life to Christ, would you just say this prayer with me right where you are? Dear God, I know that I'm a sinner and I know that I need you. I know I'm far from you. I know I'm hopeless without you. But I believe that you made a way for me to be made whole I believe you sent your son Jesus to come to earth and I believe that he lived without sin and Jesus I believe that you died on the cross and paid for sin and I also believe that you rose again three days later and you defeated death and so today I am receiving that gift of salvation. Jesus, I'm trusting you with my life. I'm asking you to save me. Would you help me live for you every day of my life? And Thank you for loving me first. It's in your name that I pray. Amen.